Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. On today's show, we do a deep dive into the future of travel with Rohit Talwar. He's a global futurist, award-winning keynote speaker, author, and CEO of Fast Future. And what does travel look like? in the future and how is it going to affect you? We talk about cryptocurrency, how that is already impacting travel businesses. Of course, that impacts us as travelers. What some of the benefits to you may be if we cross over to a more crypto-based economy. And what about artificial intelligence? How might that change everything about the travel experience from planning to the trip itself. And Rohit has some really interesting and kind of crazy examples on what a future of travel looks like with AI. So that's a big topic we cover. We also get into climate change and how we may use technology to help minimize our carbon footprint as travelers and so much more. Plus, why it's so important to stay on top of future trends and a shout out to somebody in this community who is breaking out of their hometown, which is in the same county that I grew up, and why I think this is such a great way to kickstart a life of travel. All of that and more happening in today's show. So buckle up, strap in. Thank you so very much for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. And this was an exciting one for me to record because it's not every day that I get to talk to somebody whose job, whose literal job it is to predict the future. <laughs> and relating that to travel, it was a fascinating conversation. And he talks about why we shouldn't really call these predictions. Nobody can predict the future, but through a variety of resources and data that he has access to and his team, he's able to create some forecasts on some potential ways that technology may impact the world 
and of course travel, which we're focusing on today. And you have to know, of course, just from reading the news, just from looking around, living in this post-COVID world, or is, is it even post? I don't know. You know how quickly things are changing, how much is changing, and I do think it is important to stay on top of future trends. I'll share some thoughts around that as well as this interview on the back end of the segment. I want you to hear the interview first. Before we get into that, I also want to give a shout out to somebody from right near my hometown, in fact, the same county I grew up in, and the way he is kickstarting his life of travel is a powerful and simple way that anybody can do it. And maybe not even kickstart if you're already a traveler. I know a lot of people in this community just that I've interacted with maybe used to travel a lot and they got into the full-time job thing and now they want to get back out there. This is just a great way to start building the travel lifestyle immediately. Now, I got to give this shout out to Drew. He said, hi, Jason. My name is Drew and I live in Fairless Hills, Pennsylvania. I just wanted to say a quick hello and thank you. I started listening to your podcast about a year ago and I love it. It has inspired me to stop thinking about the places I want to go and just do it. I'm leaving next week for my first solo trip. I'm going on a five-week road trip across the U.S., stopping at a lot of national parks. So thanks again, Drew. He kept it short and simple and that's what I'm going to do here. The short and simple way to start building that travel lifestyle again or for the first time is to just go and do it. (laughs) It sounds so simple, but I really do think it, it starts that simply, right? It can start that simply. And Drew got tired. Like he said, he wanted to stop thinking about these places he wanted to go and just do it. So he's getting out of his door, getting in his car, going on a road trip for five weeks and visiting these national parks. I just love that because that's something we can all do. I mean, I've done that. It's not easy, right? It's easy, but it's not easy. I remember a good example of this outside of travel was just thinking about all of the different ideas and wanting to have my own business and, and trying to think about or even this podcast. Oh, I'd love to have a, some kind of travel podcast. What, what could I do? What could I say? What would it be about? And finally, my good friend Emily over at puttylike.com, shout out to Emily. Uh, We've been in a mastermind group together for a long time. She said, hey, Jason, you need to stop thinking about this and just do it. And I was like, okay, you're right. I need to stop thinking about it and do it. And now here we are almost eight years later and hundreds of episodes in, this thing has changed my life. And that's because I stopped thinking about it and just started doing it. And that's what Drew's doing with travel. And that's what we can all do with whatever our own version is of that. So maybe that's a little challenge for all of us today is think about something that we've been thinking about (laughs) for far too long and then just do it. It's got me thinking. What else got me thinking was today's interview about the future of travel and some mind-blowing stuff in here that I never even thought of when it comes to crypto and AI and how that might impact us as travelers, the businesses out there providing travel services. This is a very wide-ranging conversation on where travel might go. I hope you enjoy it. Stick around on the back end. We'll leave you with a quote, of course. And don't forget, we'll also touch on why it's important to stay on top of future trends. And there are a ton of resources in this interview as well, which are also in the show notes. So anyway, please enjoy the chat. And I will see you on the other side, my friend.
You're a pro. You've done many of these, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I've done <laughs> done quite a lot, and a lot more coming up. Just with the book, there's uh, a lot of people seem really interested this time round. Um, having seen how long the pandemic has lasted, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more interest in okay, what what could it look like on the other side? How do how do we get through it? And then what could it look like? It's an interesting question to say the least, particularly around travel where we focus here on the podcast and I do have the pleasure right now speaking with Rohit Talwar. He is a global futurist, award-winning keynote speaker, author and the CEO of Fast Future. You can go to fastfuture.com to uh, read a bit more about him and he's also part of a new project. It's a book that's coming out or that is out, I should say, called Aftershocks and Opportunities 2: Navigating the Next Horizon. It's a provocative, challenging, and inspiring book in which 36 world-class futurists, analysts, subject matter experts, and strategists explore the issues and opportunities that could arise in our post-pandemic world. Rohit, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. You just told me right before we recorded that it's a holiday in England where you're recording. So I... I appreciate you taking your time on your day off here. <laughs> That's okay. It's a little gray outside, so uh, no, not in I, London. Yeah, exactly. That, that one gray day in the year, and I ha- we happened to call it on a public holiday. <laughs> well, you know, I'm in Norway, as we mentioned, and it's a uh, it's sunny and nice here. I think it might be the last sunny summer day. We'll see. I wanted to know how does one become a futurist? How did that become your career? So I guess there's different ways of kind of getting into that. But I guess the inspiration came from when I was a kid. And uh, I'm old enough to remember the moon landings. And at the time, I was just so excited by this idea of being able to travel to another planet. And like, how cool was the tech that could make that happen? And so after that, I just became more and more interested in new technology and what, what was coming next and what's coming after that. And there was this TV program called Tomorrow's World that always used to talk about that. And it's just fascinating stuff. Went into tech subjects at uh, school and at university. Uh, And then when I came out, I worked in artificial intelligence research. uh, And then that was really at the cutting edge and then moved into consultancy. And it was fascinating to me, like, well, how are people preparing for the future? Most of the time, people were looking at the past and just kind of projecting what was going on now, making it either bigger or smaller, depending on what the trend was. But very few few people had a kind of view of what, what might be different or where might the, the new ideas come from. And I discovered then this field called future studies. And it was like I'd been called to it. Uh, there was all these great tools for exploring what could shape the future and then looking at how they might inter- these things might interact. Um, with scenario planning and other things and I just loved it Uh, and so I started to weave it into my consulting work uh, started talking about it at conferences and just found there was a real interest and so it went from a fun thing to do as part of other presentations to becoming the core thing Uh, started to do more custom research for clients and it gradually built till we we added a publishing company and then obviously during the pandemic, we migrated to a virtual world. So, you know, I still travel around the world speaking, but I do it all from my desk here in London. Uh, so the different horizons are when I move my screen around the table. <laughs> um, isn't that the best when you can take something 
you're so interested in and somehow weave it into your work and make a living out of it, right? <laughs> well, absolutely. And then one of my other tra- uh, passions is travel. Uh, again, since I was very young, I, you know, my, I went to India when I was quite young. And uh, so I feel like I, I kind of got the travel bug from when I was like eight or nine. I just love this idea of, of being able to fly to different countries. So I, I, I've been able to combine the two and I do a lot of work with the travel and tourism industry, the, the aviation sector around the world exploring how the sectors might evolve and so it's taken me to some incredible places from Juneau Alaska to New Zealand to Australia to India Korea China and it's fascinating to meet the people there see their views about the world the lens through which they look at it so it's combined all of my passions which is understanding people and cultures travel exploring the future and uh, it's, it's allowed me to do all of those. So I've been very lucky. So uh, it feels like, you know, at least two of my arms or two of my limbs have been cut off during the pandemic because I can't go meet the people. I can't go to the destinations. Yeah. Well, you're in good company with this audience, I'd say, Then, Talk a little bit more about that, that trip that you took when you were eight or nine years old that had such an impact on you. Uh, so the family is from India, but my parents came to Britain in 57. and. Uh, my dad had been back, I think, once or twice, but my mum was really very keen to go back and see the family after 13 years. And so it was in 1970, uh, and we went back to India, and it was kind of overwhelming because as an eight-year-old going back into what was just madness, you know, felt like there were, you know, a million people everywhere you went. So many people wanted to see us that we were literally eating five meals a day. <laughs> We'd go from breakfast to coffee at someone's house to lunch to afternoon tea to dinner. And uh, it was all through love, but it was just fascinating meeting all these people and then traveling to different places. Uh, the complete mind-blowing shock of trying to get on a train to go somewhere and your luggage just being whipped away from you. And rather than panic, my mom was just like this incredibly chilled woman <laughs> strolling through. And then, sure enough, when we got to the other end, our luggage appeared again. And, uh, you know, just the whole experience and uh, things like getting on buses. Sometimes the only place where you could get somewhere was on a bus. And and that was mad because you literally run to a bus uh, where there's no way you thought you could get on. It was one of those ones where there's a kind of open back for, to get on. And people would just reach down and grab hold of you and, and pull you up onto the bus. Uh, and, like, here we go. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> kind of legs hanging off, people's out on top of it. So it was mind-blowing, the whole thing. And it, at one level, it was just everything was new, was different, uh, was just fascinating. And another level, as an eight-year-old, I just didn't have all the tools to process it or make sense of it. Um, so some of the things that stood out were – you know, the way people lived on the street and how they could live on the street like that. And then on the other side of it, you know, the building behind where they were on the street were these kind of luxury mansions going up or incredible hotels and things because uh, it was one of India's boom periods at the time. So, But it really gave me the bug for travel and to kind of see places and just explore how other people live rather than, you know, our kind of relatively comfortable lifestyle in London. Hmm. And you're, so you said both your parents came in 57? Yeah, they or? came over. They, um, uh, they, my dad worked for the Indian government. And at the time, there were a lot of Indians coming to work in the UK. So they wanted to build up the Indian High Commission, sort of 
like a, a, an embassy that um and th- so he came to work for that and uh they came over on a ship uh and funny enough my my great nephew has recently found the records of that ship and the passenger manifest of them all being on it you know i think it's ancestry.com or something you found it so it was incredible to see and to see the journey they'd taken from india through uh, south africa to london and uh it took them five months on the ship to get here uh really yeah yeah five months really thinking about that is that's quite a long time to be traveling it is and they tell they well they're both passed away now but they had wonderful stories about the experience on the ship and they met a few other families and they stayed friends throughout their lives uh, they became our aunts and uncles effectively here they became our extended family and uh you know that kind of experience i, I can't even imagine what that felt like to them to travel to a new land where everything was different Everything was a bit of a shock to the system, um, but yeah, it, they they stuck it out, and uh, and then they got to the point where they knew they couldn't go back. That we'd all just we'd all grown up here, you know, myself and my three sisters had all grown up here, and no one wanted to go back to India just because it would have been so different. I'm just curious about your cultural background because you had parents coming from India, and they're taking the Indian influence and the culture that they were a part of. And I imagine as to somebody who's an American living abroad, part of the thing I want to do is kind of instill some of the, what I would consider the best of the things that I came from in, in, into their lives. Uh, but of course they're growing up here. So they're, they're sort of surrounded by the Norwegian culture and it's just, they're, they're naturally a part of that. Whereas I'm always a bit on the outside kind of trying to just be here, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, that blend of cultures was that uh did that impact your life in some way or your views or was it were you more just british (laughs) well it was yeah it was funny because uh there were so many differences uh and one of the things about india and and, and i you know i guess middle class india in particular all all, kind of all levels of indian society family is a really strong unit but family isn't just your immediate parents and brothers and sisters it's your cousins and second cousins third cousins and and you often find people living together so when the kids get married you build another floor in your house and they go there and you know that families build together you live next door to your brother or your sister and they live in the house you know so they're very close you're in each other's houses all the time so when they came to britain there was this kind of real desire to replicate that uh, and to have that sort of cultural bond. And so luckily they'd met these other families. So growing up, I remember there being just like this continuous flow from people's houses to each other's. Almost every weekend there was something going on and there were enough people that it was pretty much a birthday party at least twice a month. And so we were all, you know, we got hundreds of pictures of those. And uh, just their their kind of style as well. They were They, they were all very conscious of like, presenting themselves in the best light so we we found pictures of them i think from the late 50s and early 60s going to the seaside uh brighton places and then taking these enormous picnics of indian food but all dressed like they were going to a wedding like the women looked immaculate in the saris the men looked like something out of some sort of hollywood you know uh gangster movie with their beautiful ties and you know sharp suits and everything and it it, it just looked um 
stunning. And, and But what would happen is that they would be on the beach with all this food and people would come along and, and just be fascinated about what they were cooking and the nice smells. Uh, and so they'd end up feeding kids and you know, families around them on the beach and they loved it. Um, and, and so we grew up inside that kind of cultural bubble, but we also had uh, you know, just English and, and UK culture. And, and I think the kids absorbed more than it, I guess, than my parents. Though they did more and more. But then there were some kind of fun little bits that you could tell were just the two cultures colliding in some way. So uh, we we used different words to mean the same uh, different things. So uh, your pajamas, what you'd wear to go to bed, in India means something quite different. It's it's the the leggings you wear underneath a kind of fancy suit when you go to a wedding or something, um, and so. My parents called what you the pajamas you would wear to go to bed a night suit, uh, and so I was at school and it was a birthday, and I'd been given pajamas, night suit for, for my birthday. And I remember a fifteen-minute conversation with friends where they were asking what I'd got for my presents, and we'd gone through them, and we just had this massive debate about what did I mean about a night suit? You know, was, did I have a sword and a shield and what kind of helmet was there? And I was like, no, a night suit. And then, you know, there's like, what you wear to go to bed? And they were like, oh, pajamas. And and it was just that kind of thing. There were a few things that you just – we had their kind of anglicized version of these things and then here. And then the other thing is I think almost by osmosis you pick up something of Indian culture. But um, there's all the religious stuff and there's the kind of food. But then there's, there's the kind of – um I was going to say the, the outlook on life and the way of dealing with life. So uh, there are certain cultures where once people find a problem, it's the start, of the start of the celebration process. We try and make it as big as possible. We try and add more and more dimensions to the problem to scale it up, so that it either becomes a reason not to move, or something that requires the grandest amount of thinking, planning, <laughs> and action before you can take it. Whereas this is something in Indian culture which kind of goes, okay, there's a problem. You know, how do we get around it? <laughs> how do we how do we become like water and find a way around it, under it, over it? But yeah, so so you know that that does mean you they find a lot of innovation. You find a lot of humor within the Indian community, laughing ourselves about that, and you find a kind of very distant cousin relationship to things like rules and procedures and processes. It's, it's like, eh, we don't really need to do that. Or is there a way we can avoid doing that? And it, 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 it's fun to see that. And then in, in quite a formal culture like Britain, how that plays out. Uh, and, uh, yeah, as you say, I, funny, I had a birthday party yesterday, um, uh, and we have a picnic in the park. It's become a bit of the tradi- a tradition. And we'd set the time for like one till five. Uh, and my British friends are like there at one o'clock. 10 past 1, 20 past 1. My Indian friends are rocking up at 3, 4 o'clock or ringing at 4 saying, hey, I'm going to be a bit late. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's just different. Yeah, it's just fun to see those cultures and uh, see how they kind of evolve and collide now. The other thing is when you you get sort of frozen in aspic a little bit. So my parents, when they came over, they kind of they were locked in a kind of vision of India in 1957 and how things were. Uh, so, but then when you go back, India's moved on and it's a different place each time you go back. 
So their last recollection of India was, you know, 150 people at the, the, the port seeing them off and putting garlands on them and all the rest of it. So when they went back, the kind of expectation was the 150 people would come back and be doing that. But people's lives had moved on. So at first, there were a couple of people at the airport. and By the end, it was like, yeah, get a cab. And, you know, and just seeing how people's lives had moved on, how fast life in the city had become, it, it was really interesting for them to just see the, the kind of shifts and the cultural changes. I'm curious, you mentioned the the line of thinking of being water and getting around the problem versus maybe tackling it head on. When it comes to future studies, you're basically anticipating future problems, right? Is that because you want to be water and you want us all to get around them or because we should tackle them head on? Well, yeah, again, I think the 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 issue becomes, uh, and the pandemic's a very good example of that. So not just futurists, but all sorts of experts in, in health in different fields have been warning that we're going to have a pandemic one day. It's just kind of inevitable because of the way we live our lives, the proximity proximity to animals, the potential for the spread. Um, because that became such a kind of unbelievably large issue for governments, and it was bigger than a brain fault for most people to even comprehend what a pandemic would mean, what dealing with it would mean in terms of shutting down society and all that. Um, largely, people went, oh, let's just pretend it's not going to happen. We'll have some vague... Which is unbelievable to me, right? <laughs> it is, but it, it's kind of human nature. Yeah. You can get that actually um, when it's that big to actually put in place the preparatory plans is really hard to do. And if the media pick up that you're putting together economic plans for the possibility of having to shut down the whole economy for a period of time, that's kind of your last term in office as a government. <laughs> You're done for. And so I understand why it doesn't happen. And the places that do, uh, you tend to find they've got very future-thinking leaders. So it's not just in that area that they're preparing. Uh, or they've had a bad experience. So that's been the case in places like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore. And so they're much better at it at now. They get that they need to look ahead. They need to prepare for a range of possibilities. And actually that act of preparing for these different things makes us better in our decision-making, makes us much more flexible in thinking about how we're going to get to the future. There, There is a tendency, I think, particularly in the West, to want to know what the future is, singular, uh, and, and to largely rely on forecasts and predictions. And the one thing you can guarantee about forecasts and predictions is that they're wrong as soon as they're spoken. Uh, the world just isn't like that. So right now, everyone... Uh, predicting, you know, Armageddon in economic markets and hyperinflation. Uh, there's a very close correlation between the prediction of those kinds of events and the lack of occurrence of them. Very few times do we find that hyperinflation or an economic downturn was really predicted by most of the analysts. They've come from left field. They've come from something that people weren't preparing for. Uh, and so, Foresight and future studies are really about exploring the wider range of forces, ideas, possibilities, weak signals emerging of possible change, how they might all come together. What are the different scenarios? And then how do we bring it back to the present and say, okay, what are the things we can do to prepare for a range of different scenarios so we're not shocked when things might happen? And of course, what plays out might not be exactly like the scenarios we develop, but it means we're much more... Uh, flexible, much more capable of responding if something is different. And, and I worry today that 
very few economies are really geared up either for a massive boom or for a deep depression. Hmm. We're just not geared up for either end of the spectrum. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I do want to take a moment just to get a better understanding of your process in future studies because when you're trying to make, I don't know if the right term would be predictions or trends or whatever you want to call it, there is a lot to draw from, right? You're essentially a, a curator of data in many ways in, in my head, right? You're taking a look at, at you're, you're choosing which data to pay attention to, which data to ignore, and then you're somehow compiling these different sources of data, matching them with cultural trends, and, and, and you're trying to put this all together in one prediction. I, and, and this is just my sort of spitball understanding of what you're doing, but I really want to understand more from you what the process is for you. No, great question. I think it's very important for people to understand that. So the first thing we'd say is that um, there are a lot of different people who call themselves futurists and there's very different approaches they use. And so there's one end of the spectrum, which I guess the people who are more trained in foresight and future studies, the, there's an end of the spectrum which is all about predictions. And for us, that's more of a kind of circus act part of futures work. That's, you know, someone goes on stage and makes someone disappear or, you know, you wow the audience with all these great predictions. But 
it's really hard to plan for the future if you're just basing your views on one set of predictions. So what we find it more interesting is to scan a whole range of sources. So I'll give an example. Quite recently, we did a piece for Heathrow, the airport. Uh, They wanted to get a picture of the world out to 2050, not tell us exactly what the world will look like in 2050, but what are some of those factors that could shape the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years? So as we're thinking about our infrastructure, our role in society, all those things, we've got a broad understanding of what might impact us. So then you start off by scanning the obvious data, things like population, what are the trends there, what are the factors that could influence changes in population. You look at things like the evolution of economic power and how that's shifting eastwards. And then, well, what are the things that could change that? There's some trends now. There's some mega trends, which are collections of trends like globalization. And then there are some uncertainties. Uh, where, you know, where are the greatest uncertainties? So, for example, what will technology do in terms of driving inflation or deflation? A lot of people see technology as a very deflationary force because it drives the price of everything down. So you try and understand these factors, and then you try and explore how they might collide. So if you take uh, certain economic factors, you look at technology and the rise of AI and automation, and then you think about the future of work and jobs. What happens when those three collide? Do we end up seeing a lot of jobs being replaced by technology? Will the new technologies create enough jobs to to fill those roles that have been vacated? And if not, what are the implications for the economy? And how do we help people retrain? So we've just seen that in a lot of countries where they've had like a furlough scheme of some kind. They basically paid people a guaranteed basic income while we get through the pandemic. And and I guess a lot of countries are going to have to keep doing that when more when they see how many jobs are lost and then people need to retrain for new jobs. I'm guessing we'll end up with a lot of those transitional schemes. So you explore these different factors, you explore how they come together, you look in very different places, research organizations, scientific and tech organizations, other thinkers. You dive deep into a particular domain. So you might have people talking about ideas of new political systems, uh, people talking about new economic models, people with very different visions of how society might work. You look at changes happening in particular industries. So right now, for example, uh, the US has a, a massive shortage of housing. Uh, it needs 3.8 million more single-person dwellings that it has available to meet the current demand. Uh, you're almost never going to get there if you try building housing at the rate you're doing it now with the techniques you're using now. So you have to turn to other techniques, things like 3D printing, where you can build a house in three hours or less and it costs you $6,000. So you you start to bring those ideas in that maybe someone in the, the, the hotel industry has never even thought about and you start to say, well, what would happen if we built 3D hotels, you know, 3D printed hotels as a few people are? Or, you know, what if we took the kind of temporary hotels that people build at festivals now where you have a 100-bedroom pop-up hotel literally appear at a festival and then you fold it down, you put it on the back of your truck and you take it away at the end of the festival. What if we actually did that in destinations so you didn't have as much of a footprint? A lot of places have cruise lines come in for a certain part of the year and they bring more tourists or the, the tourist season is a certain part of the year. And you either build hotels that are empty for half the year, or what if you put in these temporary structures and then just fold them down and suddenly they go to somewhere else that it is holiday season. So you need that kind of 
innovation from different sectors to pull together. And then you try and help clients think about, well, how might all these things come together? What are some of the different scenarios? And then what does that mean for us? How might that change our strategy? What capabilities do we need to take advantage of the opportunities or tackle the risks we might see in each scenario? And how do we make sure we're training ourselves enough and becoming flexible enough in the way we think that we're constantly looking at the radar to see what's coming and what might be changing? Mm, it's changing so fast. And yeah, yeah. I imagine for your clients, they're really looking for the edge in terms of you know, the economic advantages that could come with being able to have some foresight <laughs> into right. where things are going. And, and you see that in the travel industry right now. The, and the industry is really on a spectrum now. Um, where you've got people at one end who are just waiting for the kind of last rights to be read on their organization. They know they're never coming back. They've just been hit so hard. Uh, there's nothing they've got left to do. And then there's another group who, a bit like my parents, when the TV didn't work, they would just give it a whack on the side you know, and get it back. And there's those people who think, you know, well, we haven't got the revenue. Let's just give it another marketing whack. Let's just kind of put our pedal, you know, the pedal to the metal, see if we can push it through the floor a little bit more. Just doing the same stuff, maybe through different tools. But, you know, can we just make it work with what we've got targeting the same people? And then you've got all sorts of interesting innovations. People, can we can we change the proposition? Can we change the experience? And, and crypto, I guess, has introduced this whole new idea of can we change our business models? Can we tap into a whole new set of economic thinking that allows us to target a group of people who, who want to pay differently but want to participate differently? And does it allow us to change the kind of model for our organization to something that we'd never thought about doing? Hmm. Let's talk about crypto since you mentioned it, just for people that are listening that maybe don't have too much familiarity with it. Maybe they've heard about it, but don't really understand. I would love for you to just give us the quick 101 on cryptocurrency, if you don't mind. Sure. So really, it was born out of the the, um, the financial crisis of 2007-2008, where there's a lot of tech people who are saying that the global economy runs on tech. Um, but in a sense, we've not been allowed into the design of financial systems. We've been kept out of that. So all this clever thinking we've got, uh, we're not being allowed to use that clever thinking to say, how do you make markets work more efficiently? How do you reduce the gap, the wealth divide? Uh, and kind of looking at their own creation in a sense and saying, we missed something. So when the internet was set up, there were no mechanisms set up in the internet for payment to make money flow around the internet as easily as data did and and in, but in a secure way so roll the clock forward and people came up this idea of can you decentralize it uh, the moment all money flows through central organizations or banks or whatever and, and there is the potential for them to manipulate markets there's the potential for them to get things wrong to be hacked so your money's gone or for them to change the records of a transaction and so what the crypto community sort of said was, well, look, can we bring in very advanced security cryptographic techniques? Can we bring in this idea of distributing computing across multiple nodes? And you know, um, the kind of network theory of how organizations grow. So if you look at Facebook, Google, the bigger the network, the bigger the network becomes and the more powerful you become as a brand. Can we put all those together and create a new model? 
At the center of that is this idea of distributed ledger technology. So when you have a transaction, in its simplest form, you record it in multiple places. And you record it in a way that you can't erase it. And so even if I try to erase it on one node, I can't possibly erase it on all of the nodes in the network. And so then that kind of that became the basis for the first digital currency, Bitcoin. And uh, then there's all sorts of economic ideas come in. So Bitcoin has a fixed supply. It will never have more than 21.5 million coins. Uh, and so people say that's deflationary rather than traditional government currencies, fiat currencies, where they can just print more <laughs> whenever they want. And so that's seen as inflationary. Um, and, and so what we started to see is all sorts of innovations happening, people coming up with new business models, funding their ventures with the issue of tokens in the same way as you would with shares. But those tokens can be tradable for goods and services from your organization uh, and also coming up with new models of how you run businesses. So because all of this is done in tech, uh, we can now create something called distributed autonomous organizations where literally they have no employees. They just run entirely in software and whoever sets them up hands over their control to the community who hold the tokens. The community then propose and vote on any changes. So they do the governance and if they need to, they bring in developers to make the changes, but it runs effectively on its own. So a good chunk of what's going on, on uh, in the crypto economy at the moment is these DAOs as they're called. Sometimes a company will set one up, but leave the DAO to run separately with a uh, its own community running it. So this is very different to anything we've thought about. And uh, you then see all these interesting ideas like decentralized finance. So in the traditional world, you give $1,000 to the bank. Uh, you lend it to the bank effectively. If you're lucky, you get 0.1% interest back on that. The bank, through fractional reserve lending, is allowed to lend at least 10 times that out. Uh, and let's say they lend it out at 5%. So your $1,000 uh, now earns the bank $500 in interest. You're getting 0.1%, they're getting 500 What the crypto world has said is, well, why don't we, if we automate that, there's no one in the middle taking rent out. And if we're doing these transactions and we're lending money to one person, well, we'll just share that with anyone who's given us the money. Uh, and if, if we're charging a transaction fee, we'll just share with, with everyone who owns the tokens. And so it changes the, the model, and which is why it seems crazy. But you know, I have uh, some money on an exchange at the moment where it's earning ninety-eight percent interest on an annual basis, and and you've seen ones come up with much higher rates. That they're, they're often in slightly riskier tokens, but the world is changing. So that there's all these possibilities, and then there's new business models emerging. So sort of taking loyalty to the next level, or changing the whole way a company operates. And so the, the really exciting thing in crypto, you, you've got hotels starting to offer crypto, uh, starting to accept crypto, having uh, Bitcoin ATMs in their lobby. They don't actually print uh, a physical coin, but you can convert cash to, to Bitcoin or vice versa. You're seeing airlines offering it, and you're seeing travel agents now offering, um, like Travala, uh, through lots of deals, they provide e Expedia with their crypto booking service uh they're taking i think it was um something like uh what they take now the 62 different coins 70 percent of their revenue comes in from crypto 
they're they're generating over a million dollars a month in this now. So it's a it's a relatively new player, but they can through their partnerships with all these other providers, they can provide access to three million plus travel products. So you're seeing those kind of things, and then you're seeing some really interesting thinking about well, how do we change the dynamics of things in the industry? So if I accept Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency, uh, there's a certain price someone will pay. But there's a potential for that to increase in value over time. And right now, Bitcoin is around $50,000. And there are predictions, some people saying it would die, but others are saying that in three to five years, it could be worth a million dollars. So if I've given you the equivalent of $1,000 worth of Bitcoin today for flights, I'm going to be really upset in three years' time when I realize that that $1,000 that I've given you could be worth $10,000. and there are lots of stories of people, you know, who paid for a pizza with a whole Bitcoin years ago, and it's now worth $50,000. So now we can say, well, okay, you do a deal with that company where you say, okay, there's a certain proportion of what you pay that they accept as the revenue, but there's another proportion gets put in a, a locked wallet, if you like. And each year, each year, that we, it's just a digital wallet, but effectively each year it's an automated contract. You just pay out. So a portion of the gain goes to the, the travel provider for taking the risk and a portion of you goes back to you for showing loyalty to that brand. And so you, you start to get really interesting models emerge. You start to get the possibility of brands creating ecosystems. So a lot of brands are now starting to say, hey, we, we have you know a million, 10 million, 100 million, maybe a billion followers. Say that someone like Disney, you've probably got a billion plus customers around the world. And you already give them some sort of rewards if they follow you. But what if you could have them do all their buying of Disney products using Disney tokens? So whether you're staying in a Disney hotel, going to a Disney theme park, buying a Mickey Mouse hat, watching a you know a Star Wars film, what if you could pay with all that with Disney token? And I could reward you for that. Then I don't need credit card companies because the money just moves around in the system. I can become my own provider of credit to people or I can encourage credit card companies to come and live inside the Disney ecosystem. But your Disney token can become worth more and more over time as well because of the value. And ultimately, you're, you're seeing new brands come to market, as I say, who are issuing tokens from the start. So actually, actually, you have a share in that company. So you could, over time, see Disney convert its shares to tokens so that you know, if I own the shares in a company, I can't buy things from them with those shares. But if I own tokens, it's my choice as to whether I keep them for capital appreciation. So it serves a dual purpose of being yeah. shares, but also yeah. creating your own economy. Yeah. And, and there will be times where I want to get out of the Disney community to buy something. Right. Now, now, Disney have two choices. They either do deals with others to say, okay, let, let's, you know, we'll, we'll make it possible for you to swap your Disney tokens with someone who has tokens, let's say, for uh, phone services. Right. Or you could pay, you know, whatever amount of tokens for a Netflix subscription or something. Exactly. Like in partnerships. Yeah. Or you bring them into the community. So from Disney's point of view, it's better to bring them in and and play, but they can also do trading deals. And you're starting to see that now. You're starting to see um, players come up, remember the name of one, um, who are offering that service to say, we can swap those loyalty points between organizations. And then we know in the airline industry, somewhere between 40 to 80% of loyalty points actually get used. So there's a lot of dead loyalty points. But if we can swap them, and if I always travel American, but I've got 
points on Air India and you know, Emirates and wherever, suddenly I can swap them all and I can make use of them. You know, is can, there an organization that's doing that right yeah, now? Yeah, there's, there's a provider. Aggregating, essentially, all of the loyalty programs? Yeah, there's, programs? There's, there's someone who's just come into the market uh, offering that service, and um, they are called Sand, uh, Sandblock. Um, uh, they, they've just come in with that kind of offering to be able to, to swap. So, you know, what you're seeing now is, is the industry really uh, at that point, at the tipping point. So you've got, uh, you've got providers like Dolder Hotels in, uh, in Switzerland where they accept Bitcoin or, and cryptos. You've, they partnered uh, with uh, an airline called private airline called Bitlux. Uh, and basically, if you use one, you get a discount on the other. And so they're kind of locking customers in. Bitlux already do 50% of their bookings in crypto. You're seeing um, travel clubs are almost like subscription models in air, in aviation in particular. So like Surf Air, uh, you pay a subscription that gives you the right to certain flights and you pay in crypto. And, mm. and the benefit to them is that the value of the crypto you've paid largely goes up over time, even if there are dips mm. in the market. So they don't have the deal where it goes into a, another wallet and you split it at the end. No, they don't. But you could see that being a next stage. Right now, I think the players coming in to offer crypto payments are largely just replacing dollar transactions with yeah. crypto. But would that, that be, uh, that one example, would that be considered something that's called a smart contract because yeah. I was going to ask you about smart contracts. This is a something that's usually on Ethereum, right? Or I think there are some other platforms. I'm just, I, it sounds like everything that I've read, that is a big part of where the future is going. So I thought it would be good just to get an understanding around what exactly smart contracts are and how they might come into play. I think you already used a great example, but right. So basically the one of the core functions uh, of these platforms like Ethereum, uh, Kusama, Solana, and others at uh, Cardano's just coming up. Um, what well, is becoming one of the biggest is you create these automated contracts. So I basically invest money with you. Uh, you basically and the contract is that you're going to pay me a certain amount of interest each day on that based on you taking revenues in there's no one can get in the way there's just a fixed contract and there's automated uh rules there so each day while my money's in there whatever the interest is you pay it out and at the end of the, the period you drop the money back into my wallet and, and the deal is over no human gets involved at all so you have these really uh, more and more complex kind of rule sets about how something might operate but it's all automated. So if we take that example of um, investing, uh, paying to buy flights, but having some of it put into a, a, a smart contract that shares the capital gains with the provider and the customer, that could all be automated. You wouldn't need a single moment of human intervention once you'd built the software. And it would just click away for however long it clicked away. And and so that's why you're seeing the rise of all these decentralized autonomous organizations that can do increasingly clever and complex things without any human involvement because they've been designed to do that. And the contracts just tick away in the background. And the platforms like Ethereum, uh, Cardano, Solana, what they offer is mechanisms through which you can create these contracts. 
So, so they offer like a toolkit to doing it in the same way as a lot of companies offer toolkits for people to develop web apps. They provide the underlying functionality to do that. I know you mentioned predictions being a bit of a circus act, but I have to ask you, it, it, it kind of goes back to the, well, and you'll get this reference, the beta versus the VHS, right? Yep. Which one, which one's going to win out <laughs> uh, in terms of smart contracts and which platform like, yeah so yeah. um well so if you look at any tech venture um through the last kind of 20 years uh, 95 to 99 percent of all tech ventures fail <laughs> there's there's no reason why it will be any different in the crypto world uh but i think the ones that look like they're most likely to survive are the big market cap ones because a they've got traction now there are you know tens of thousands of people have built their applications on top of ethereum lots are building them on top of cardano or solana so they're building up a kind of loyalty base the other thing that's happening is they've got very loyal communities so you've got hundreds of thousands maybe even millions of people follow those platforms and and then you've kind of got the the mega power of the big financial institutions. You know, suddenly they come wading in, and uh, they they're they're playing in you know lump sums of a, a billion dollars or more. And when they start putting money into these platforms, you know, they're buying their tokens. And big high net worth investors, pension funds are starting to come in, sovereign wealth funds, all sorts of institutional money's coming in. And they're kind of guaranteeing now the success of certain players just because there's so much money in them, there's so much interest. And, and there is also the potential to manipulate markets. So if you want to kill a venture, you buy a bunch of its tokens and then you just keep selling them. Almost like you know, people have tried to, the short sellers tried to kill AMC and those. You try and do that. And, and, and you can do it very effectively because it's a much smaller market. The crypto market is only two trillion, whereas you know global stock markets are what a hundred trillion, something like that. So, uh, so you can see that there's ways that you can also manipulate the market, which exactly so exactly the same happens in equity markets. But so there are a few platforms that look m- more likely to succeed than others, and and then there are some that are are doing like very tangible things. So something like VeChain helps people run supply chains do everything across a supply chain and it's one of the few crypto platforms that the government of china loves so it's encouraging chinese businesses to use it one of the biggest manufacturing you know ecosystems in the world so it's very likely that something like vchain will win there Um, and and so you can see in every part of the crypto sector whether it's non-fungible tokens gaming or whatever there's two or three players that are starting to emerge in each space who look more likely to succeed. Hmm. Um, I want to bring this back to travel, but I, I just have more questions. Yeah, because let's go wherever you want. Let's go wherever you want. I just wonder with decentralized finance, there are those that want to decentralize. And then, of course, there are the governments that and the credit card come. There's a lot of money on that side and a lot of uh, incentive in terms of power to not just kind of hand that over, right? So you got these two forces at play. I mean, what at some point does that come to a head? Where where do you see those that that how do you see that playing out? To me, this might involve 
a bit of travel and, and tie in the idea of open borders, at least in my space, I've seen a lot of digital nomad visas. And, and you know, now that everybody's working remotely, countries are like, oh, let's get you here because you can pay your tax dollars here and we're going to make money. Whereas it used to be, you know, hey, we're, you know, only a select few can come visit this country. I've noticed that more countries are opening up. They want people to come. They want people to stay longer. They want you to take your remote job to their place. There are some cities that are even paying people to move there, which is obviously opening up travel for a lot of people, which I think can be a good thing or is a good thing. But just the broader question of the these two forces at play, well, what do you see happening? So yeah, you're talking about old world versus new world. Uh, and we're running a study at the moment on you know, why are people getting involved in crypto or why would they get involved? Because there's only about 300 million people estimated uh, around the world who are involved in crypto right now. 100 million, by the way, are in India. Uh, so, um, yeah, so it's because it and it's very much a, a very tech savvy community right now or early adopters or people who are just really attracted by the scale of the gains, you know, the, the stories of people becoming a millionaire in three days. Uh, because certain coins have just pumped. And uh, so they're, they're very early adopters. And um, the the study, what they're finding, we're finding in the responses is the two main reasons that people are coming in. One is that they want to be part of this kind of new wave of innovation and to be in at the early stages of something that could be a game changer, like the next internet, effectively. The second is they want to be part of a disruption of the traditional financial system uh, where the returns largely go to one group, but the money is provided by another. Uh, and there's a disparity there. And uh, what we can see is that every part of traditional financial services can be disrupted now. So the credit card companies, Visa, billion dollars in crypto revenues in just the of crypto transactions in the first half of this year. They get it. They get what's going on. But uh, what we're seeing is that uh, people are just looking at this very differently. So crypto.com is a crypto exchange. But you can have a credit card from them. And depending on how much you spend, you can get up to 8% cash back. Now, how is that possible when the cash back on Visa or Amex or whatever is maybe 1%? You know, it's, they're charging the same interest level to, to who they're lending the money to. They're just giving much more of it back to the customer. Uh, because of and, the upside? Well, because they've just got a much more efficient model. They're much more automated. They don't have the same overheads. They don't have profits to give to shareholders because the community of the shareholders. And so, uh, but you've got this clash going on. And a lot of the uh, investment banks have been playing a very interesting game. Where on the one hand, they've been saying, stay out of crypto. It's toxic. It's, you know, the end. And on the other hand, they've been building up <laughs> bigger and bigger reserves and getting their high net worth customers in. And uh, they've been struggling with how they can make money out of this because if people can do it themselves, why do they need the banks? But it's still quite complicated to do uh, any of that kind of DeFi stuff. The, the interfaces are designed for techies who are willing to go to Telegram or Discord, ask questions, you know, learn from the, the channel for a DeFi app as to how to do it, how to put money in, or they'll go and find videos. Most people aren't going to do that. If, if you're a high net worth individual and you've got 10 million, 100 million, 
you're not going to sit down <laughs> and be tapping away trying to find out, you know, how to how to you know deposit money or get into a uh, a, a high interest deal on Yearn Finance or Pancake Swap. So if a bank can get in the middle and say, no, we'll provide those services for you and we'll make it as easy to do this as we do to manage the rest of your portfolio, that's how the banks and players can come in. That's going to drive take up. Um, there's also this concern, I think, in traditional financial communities about the scale of returns. Like Bitcoin is the best performing asset in history, the financial asset. If you look at any 10 period, year period, there's nothing outperformed it. And, and if you look at the trend line, that the low each year is higher than the previous year's low, which is always an encouraging sign. The, the concern for the traditional markets is if people can see the kind of capital appreciation you can get in crypto, and we can't really deliver that in traditional equity markets, what does that do to those? So the big financial community are also getting in there to try and control it a bit, to sort of make sure that Bitcoin and the other coins don't go up too fast or they bring them down again. And so there's there's a lot of that kind of market management going on. And then the third issue is governments. Governments are very concerned that this money can flow across borders. You might know which wallet it's gone to and which wallet it's been received by and the amount. All that's visible on the blockchain. It's transparent. But you don't know who owns the wallets. So it's hard to get tax revenues. It's hard to keep money within borders. It's hard to see whether people are breaking, uh, you know, any restrictions on giving money to certain countries. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, it, there could be illegal activity, money laundering going on or whatever. So governments are starting to think about how do we uh, regulate this stuff? How do we put more control around it? And do we issue our own currencies so we can basically control it? We can follow the money. If we give you money, we, we will know who you are. We won't just let you have money. And so you've seen China doing its own digital yuan project. I think there's 20 million people involved in that experiment uh, to just create a digital currency. And there will be competition to become, in the same way as the dollar is the global reserve currency, there'll be competition between the digital yuan and the digital dollar to become the global currency. But you're seeing a lot of countries moving there already. So Ghana has gone to a central, a central bank digital currency You've seen El Salvador adopting Bitcoin. Uh, the president has been on TV explaining to the nation what it is. They're giving everyone $30 in Bitcoins. He's shown them how to download a wallet and download your cash into it and then spend with it. Uh, just heard Cuba is basically effect, um, so El Salvador is making legal tender. Cuba's going down the same route and putting regulations in. And one of the things that's going on here is a lot of countries that are effectively tied to bigger currencies like the dollar are wanting to loosen the influence of that. Because if you're a smaller country, you're effectively governed by the monetary policy of the US with the dollar. So they're trying to decouple from that. I think if we look in 10 years time, you'll see most countries having a digital version of their currency. And, and whether we'll have... 200 plus digital currencies or whether they'll be effectively 10 and you'll just have your you know your belgian version of, of the digital dollar or whatever but you will have that effectively a single global currency where the the currencies are all interchangeable um and probably more and more regulation more and more control so we'll take some of the wild west elements out we'll take the potential away from people to hide money um so because uh, at some point you'll want to take your money out of the crypto system 
back into hard cash. And that means you've got to go through an exchange and that's where they know who your identity is. So whilst you can still do hacks and steal money within the crypto world, it's kind of harder to do anything with the money you steal because <laughs> people can see where the wallet is. And at some point you've kind of got to go to an exchange, take the money out and the exchanges basically won't let you do that. So, uh, so it's a really interesting world. It's fascinating the way it's evolving. It's fascinating to watch the interplay uh, the the people from the crypto world are convinced that they're, they're the end of traditional financial systems because they're fairer, they're more transparent. I can give someone on the poorest level of income some Bitcoin instead of paying them in cash and suddenly I'm transforming their prospects because that could grow in value over time, uh, which the traditional systems just don't do. But um, the traditional system is very strong. There's a huge amount of money in there. And so I think what you'll see is most likely some sort of evolution where it changes a bit, but it also ends up controlling the crypto markets a lot more and uh, making them work to the interests of the traditional system more. Uh, mm. What might be some advantages for travelers within the next, say, three to five years in terms of using crypto over fiat or regular currency? So for a lot of travelers, you know, it's fine to stay in your current currency. There, there may be no benefits to you. But for some, it's about the flexibility that literally I don't have to buy all these different currencies. I don't have to do uh, credit card transactions in multiple currencies and pay fees that I'm not even aware of till I get back and see them on my bill. I can just pay in one currency wherever I go. And then I can get rewards. Uh, effectively, my money starts to become intelligent. So when I start to pay for something, I'm buying a, a flight, let's say, uh, then there's quite a few travel agents now accepting flights on behalf of, of multiple airlines. So like Alternative Airlines has 600 airlines on its books uh, and it will accept crypto payments across all those airlines. So you start to get some interesting things there where when I buy, my money's smart enough in my crypto wallet to know that I've got all these points from seven different airlines. And can I use some of that to pay as well and it becomes a much smarter ecosystem and then there's the potential for rewards uh just being rewarded for paying in crypto and getting more and more rewards from those those organizations and then there's the potential to get into um, capital gains so if i if we do move to these deals where the the people you buy from actually put a portion of the, what you've paid into a shared gain shared risk wallet then it can go up and then if I go into these bigger ecosystems with someone like this Disney or let's say a Hyatt creates one of these, then I've got the potential to, to make my money work much harder because I might put $1,000 in, but because of the appreciation in the value of that to token and the rewards I'm earning from everything I'm buying, my $1,000 could end up being worth $1,500. And, and so that you can see that kind of attraction and you just see the the potential to take out a lot of the, the transaction costs, take out a lot of the intermediaries to all these smart contracts. And so it means that my dollar goes further. And as a provider of these services, I'm not having to pay out money all the way through. I'm not having to pay, maybe as a hotel, I'm not having to pay the travel agent. I'm not having to pay the credit card company. So I can keep more of my revenue as well. And I can afford to cut my prices to the end traveler because it's all more efficient and more and more of this is happening without any human involvement. Obviously there's a big issue about, well, what do we do that, with the jobs that are getting displaced? 
uh, and that's a training and retraining challenge and a job creation challenge. But you know, this this innovation is happening. No one knows exactly what it's going to look like, but I think it has some quite transformative opportunities uh, in this space. And then the other thing is you've got um, people who've become very wealthy in crypto who just want to pay in it, who just spend crypto on a daily basis now in the way they would dollars. They're paying for you know coffee through their credit card or whatever, but they, they want to use, okay, I've got some of this coin here that isn't going to do that well or whatever, I'll use that. I've got this, uh, this coin that really is going to appreciate a lot. I'm not going to use that for my purchases. But they're just starting to become smarter in, what, in how they purchase uh, and, and they're wanting to do more and more of their purchasing. So if I'm a high net worth individual and I make my money through crypto, I kind of want to spend through that. And I want luxury experiences curated for me uh, because I'm paying in crypto and I want you to reward me. And you're seeing that. Now, we talked about the Dolder in, um, in Switzerland. They do that. They create very curated experiences. And you're seeing travel agents coming in now, creating these high end experiences, really targeting that crypto millionaire community. Hmm. That is, that's fascinating. It's also strange to think you'd be reaching in your wallet and trying to decide which money to spend right <laughs> right now you just you go in and you, you spend the money you need to spend wherever you are but <laughs> yeah and, and you've probably got i don't know 10 different loyalty schemes you're part of you know sears macy's american airlines hilton you know whoever best buy but you only think about using those points m- largely when you're buying from that organization there's a little bit of interchange but if your money is smart, you don't even need to be involved in that conversation. It can literally be trading your Best Buy points for American Airlines points and then spending them with American Airlines and American Airlines rewarding you for converting from other airlines and, and other providers to you. So they're giving you a little bit extra. And so, but all this is happening in an automated fashion. The intelligence is in your digital wallet. Effectively, the intelligence is in your money. That's why people talk about smart money, intelligent money. Uh, And we don't have to be involved at all. I can set it up so that uh, whenever I make a purchase of anything, it's rounded up. So if I pay $2.75 or $899 for something, it's rounded up to the nearest number. And that money buys me a crypto. And then... That's just used to make these purchases going forward. I'm building my wallet without even thinking about it. Uh, and that's starting to happen. Or At the moment, people are mainly doing it to put in traditional saving schemes. But it's very easy to do that, to buy a little bit of crypto over time. Uh, and then you don't really care about what the price is because you're averaging over time. You're just you're rounding up. You're not even noticing that you've put you know, 25 cents there, a dollar there into this. But you're building up a little portfolio over time. And so we're just going to see changes in people's behaviors where we can do smarter and smarter things with our money, but have to be less and less involved in how it's done. So that's why you hear this term of becoming your own bank, that my money starts to work out where best to put it to earn the best interest, which are the best interest deals to take for different cards. So maybe I sell your pancake swap token and and I, I buy burger swap because there's a much higher rate of interest available on burger swap tokens than there is on pancake swap. 
and then I, you know, I swap them back. And then if the price of pancake swap goes, it starts to go up. I sell my burger swap and go in. But I can automate all that. I can put rules in there. I can give you as the human the chance to go in and view everything all the time. And you can make the, the ultimate choices. But a lot of that can just be automated. So I mm. never have to worry. Mm. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Can I can I keep you for a little bit longer? I know we're sure, we're sure. Talk, I have no I idea. talk about artificial intelligence, which I think, yeah. how can you say that that's not going to be a f- part of the future of travel, right? Absolutely. I'm just wondering in what ways it may be. So the, the real power of AI is it, it kind of allows us to do things that, um, humans can do but faster and on a bigger scale so literally checking every possible travel site on the web to find me the very best possible deal for my you know for, for my desired trip or finding me the best combination of things so i might have to do a bit of bus a bit of rail a bit of air maybe even a bit of sea and and hotels in the middle of that journey and, and all those experiences and being able to do that all for me rather than having to go to 16 websites myself and trusting the AI. So it's doing stuff on a scale, all those things humans can do, but it's doing it on a scale that we would never think of. And then there's uh, doing things that are just um, things that are just way beyond what a human could do. So when you look at drug discovery, uh, we uh, the AI can now look at millions of possible different compounds to find what might be the right one to deal with a target disease so i narrow it down to a much smaller group that i then start to do physical chemistry with so so uh when um travala is finding the right products for you it, it's searching three million plus products across all its partners to give what you want now no human could do that and then it's doing then the next bit is it's just doing stuff that is even smarter than humans or as smart or smarter than humans. 
So we're starting to see uh, AI compose music. We're seeing driverless vehicles that are learning as they go and getting smarter as they go. And we could get to the point, maybe within the next five years, where AI is as smart as 80% of us 80% of the time and, and smarter than some of us already. And there what you could see is you're watching a film uh, on TV, your AI through the camera on the TV, uh, your AI on your smartphone is talking to the TV, maybe there's sensors on your body. It's sensing that you're loving this video of Japan that you're watching. So by the time the film ended, it's already compiled like a one and a half minute travel video for you of the highlights of what you might want to experience in Japan if you went there because it knows you as well. It knows you like good food. It knows you like you know mountains or whatever. You can then add to that, but then it goes off and it bids, puts out a request for proposals on the internet to the travel providers to say, okay, who can provide the best fit for, for this experience? You then come back, you negotiate, and then it manages everything in that process from booking the driverless car to take you to the airport, doing all the security scanning while you're in the car. Uh, it's negotiated. You, you go straight onto the plane, then you don't need to go into the airport. Uh but it's negotiated with the airline to make sure that the food you're served is really good for you. So gone are the rich chocolate desserts and the vodkas and you're having carrot juice and, you know, alfalfa salad. Uh, it, it's chosen entertainment for you to watch, if you know, because it knows what you like. It's pre-booked access to that film on whatever device you want to watch it on. When you get to the other end, you just walk out of the airport. It, your driverless car takes you to the hotel you're sent straight to your room because the checkout's all been done already with facial recognition. In the room, again, the minibar, the AI's been at it. It's making sure that the Toblerone and the vodka miniatures have gone again and there's just like, you know, salads and and green juices. As you travel around Japan, uh, the AI is narrating your experience for you, telling you what you might see. It's pulling stuff up on your augmented reality glasses. So when you're looking at a temple, it's showing you kind of videos of what life would have been like in that temple 300 years ago or in that palace. When you're talking to Japanese people, there's instantaneous translation going on. All of that's kind of doable now. All that tech is there now to do pretty much everything we've talked about. We haven't pulled it together yet, uh, and it's not perfect yet in some cases, like the interpreting your body language, the, uh, your microfacial expressions. We're getting better and better at that, but... We're going to see AI just do stuff that's beyond human capability very soon and create these kind of rich experiences. And that's going to be mind-blowing, but it's going to come as a real shock to a lot of the players in the industry. And their biggest hope at the moment is that they can hold it off for as long as possible. There's very few have the, you know, the, the courage to kind of stand back and envisage that kind of experience and say, okay, how would we make this happen? How would we put this together? This isn't everyone's desire, but how do we create those kind of super curated, super smart, slick experiences throughout and then have you pay in crypto so actually you made profit by the time you get home or sell the experience you've had when you're traveling around Japan because we're capturing not only the video of what you're seeing, but we're capturing the bodily sensations and then we're replaying that into an immersive reality experience of people who are back home who, who don't want to go on the trip with you to Japan because they don't want to spend $5,000 for all that you purchased, but they're willing to spend $50 to, 
to, to, to sample that experience through a virtual reality headset and sensors on their bodies so they can have much of the same experience. They can taste the foods, smell the, the, the flowers, feel the bed linens, all of that kind of stuff, but without ever having to leave home. Now, you sell enough of those, you can make, uh, you know, you make a profit. That sounds crazy, but it's no different to Spotify. <laughs> I'm a content creator, effectively. I put it up for sale on Spotify, and you're seeing more and more platforms come up that are doing that, but I'm just going to earn revenue from it. Uh, but it requires a kind of vision to look at that and say, how do we make this happen? And it requires an imagination to kind of, this is going back to the Indian thing, of not just seeing all the, re- the the obstacles, but saying, okay, what would it really take to enable this? Who do we need to have leading these projects that has imagination, has given themselves permission to believe they can do it, and we've given them a license to thrill? And then how do we bring together people who are motivated about making it happen rather than living in a world of finding reasons why we shouldn't do it? And normally people kind of, play the regulator card to say, oh, the regulator won't like this, the regulator won't like it. They won't, you know. Regulators aren't really like that. They, they're not the innovators. They are innovating in how they regulate, but they just want to make sure that the consumer is protected largely. So the challenge is not saying, well, you know, what is the regulator going to stop, but how do we work with the regulator to understand what we're doing and ensure we're building in the right protections in this? And if we start from thinking about protecting the consumer through all this, then we don't have to worry about the regulator. Uh, the, the industries that complain most about the regulators are the ones who tend to be most self-centered, most driven by who they are and how they want to operate rather than the experience they want to create for their customers and how best to protect them. We wouldn't need half the consumer-focused regulation we have in travel or in financial services if we started with the customer and protection of the customer before we designed our products. You personally, as a traveler, would you want that experience you just described? Uh, I'd, I'd love to sample someone else's experience through VR, but not for long. You know, maybe five minutes here, ten minutes there. I wouldn't want to sit there for four hours kind of consuming. But would you want to be the 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 guy that's getting the body, it has the body sensors, and then, you know, you're, for, you know, you're sort of fed this perfect... I'd, I'd sort of love to try that kind of whole curated experience to see what it felt like so that I could focus more and more on my attention and just having a good time and connecting with people and doing the things I like and seeing the things I want to see. Uh, I might miss some of the kind of thrill. Like, so I love, you know, I've been to 70 plus countries. I do like kind of just wandering off and seeing what's happening, you know, and, and kind of happening upon a market or whatever. Now, we could get to the point where the AI kind of does that for us. So it kind of makes it feel like we've taken control, but it just nudges us to say, actually, you know, right. And that's then not if, a safe... if the if you know it's not truly spontaneous, then is the spontaneity removed? So, but because uh, yeah. it's a false spontaneity. So that's where I think I would go is maybe you have some of those experiences, but you also have the ones where you can have all the spontaneity. So I might still want um, the AI to do the travel booking process, where I trust it. I say what I want. But then I don't have to spend hours finding, you know, checking all the connecting flights and, you know, doing it. I, I, I just give an, ex- an example. 2019, I was speaking in five different U.S. cities over the space of two weeks. 
Like I was doing Phoenix, I was doing Juno, Vegas. I can't remember where else. And I was kind of crisscrossing the States to do this. And I put a holiday at the beginning in, in, uh, in South California. So I was in uh, San Francisco, I was in Berkeley, San Diego, and Santa Monica. And I must literally have spent two and a half days searching to find the flight combinations yeah, that yeah. could work for me because some of them were really tight yeah. in full three different airlines. It's and I, a job. <laughs> I, I'd given this to travel agents and no one was coming back and giving me the, the solution. They would never work. And they were like, well, you, you can't get those flights. And I was just kind of going, well, if I don't get those flights, I can't be there to do the gig the next day. So, right. um, And so I ended up doing it all. And I ended up, you know, searching 12 different tiny airlines that could get me to Juno in Alaska and yeah. discover that part of it you could give to the AI right You're like, yeah, I don't need I, that I give all that to the AI the AI is going to not get bored right it's not going to get frustrated and the AI is not thinking well I'm only making one percent on this transaction so how much effort I really going to put in for that human because uh, they want to do business with me the AI is just going to do what it's told in that you know it's going to be intelligent and super smart and it, it's going to learn over time and if I'm delayed, and there are people now um, starting to, to kind of do automated uh, disruption insurance, but it's going to do all of that. If my flight's delayed or disrupted, it's just going to you know sort that out. Smart contracts get me paid. So all of that logistics, automating it all takes no you know uh, just takes pain away and brings me joy. There is there's no downside to having that happen. And if the AI can also work out and even negotiate to pay for some of this with dead air miles or dead loyalty points I've got and just kind of I've given it permission to take my really small crypto balances and a few coins and because it can get a really do good deal, it's worth paying in those coins rather than hanging on to them. I, I'm, I'm delirious. And if it can do all the tax management and all that as well, I'm even more delirious. I want my time for me. I want my time to be with my kids, with my family, with my friends, having these fantastic experiences, and then you know working with my clients. Uh, but all of the the administrivia, the logistics, none of that brings any joy to me. I, there was a time, you know, twenty years ago, where I used to love doing that, you know, kind of searching, particularly when the internet came start come through, where I can start to do that. It was fun to play. But now I don't need that. I, I just, mm. <laughs> I don't. And I think a lot of people are going to be like that. Just wrapping up on AI, because of course there's the, there's the camp that believes AI will lead to the downfall of humanity. <laughs> and then there's the other side, which is more what you're describing, right? We can use this as a tool and various things, but it's not going to completely destroy our, our world or our universe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think we're in an interesting place there. So by the way, the, um, the insurance company, the ones who are already offering flight delay insurance and automated payouts and things, uh, it's called EtherRisk. There is a dystopian possibility there because we can't possibly know what's going on with all the AI developments happening everywhere in the world. And literally millions of people now writing AI code, uh, AI writing itself, its own code now. China reportedly putting $430 billion into AI. The big tech companies buying AI companies, pouring massive amounts of investment into AI. We have no clue what's being done or how fast it's being done in the development stages because you've got no visibility of that. So I think what we will see is AI taking more and more uh, prominence in everything we do from 
you know, basic matching on a dating app to taking over and almost just giving me the last say of saying, hey, we think we've talked to their AI and we really think the two of you will be compatible. And we reckon, knowing both of you, that this is where you should go for your first date walk. Uh, and then on the on the date, kind of coaching us on what to say and how to kind of keep the conversation going. You, know, you can see that. Um, but it'll cross into all sorts of fields of life that we hadn't really thought about. It will be used more and more in delivering government services. It will be re- used more and more in automating all sorts of experiences as people try and compete. Technology drives the price of things down. We have to take people out if we're going to compete. So you can see the inevitable there. The question is, at what point do we hand over greater and greater control to the AI? Does it start to make decisions that are, if you like, um, central to human existence? So when does it start to make the uh, do not resuscitate decisions? When does it decide that you're not worthy of treatment? When does it decide that you don't have enough income or wealth to live in this particular area and we don't want you dragging you know, the tone of the neighbourhood down? When does it decide you're worth rewarding to come and stay in this city? When does it decide uh, in an autonomous vehicle, uh, if you're going to have an accident because someone's pulled in front of you, do we hit the car in front? Do we hit the pedestrian on the pavement? You know, who makes that decision? And if the AI is making that decision, on what basis is it doing it? Is it using facial recognition to know who those people are and considering their net worth or their net contribution to society and how might their net contribution differ if you're in a strongly religious country where that one of them happens to be a religious leader who, who if you like, provides the moral backbone to a country or another country where actually we value the innovators and this person happens to be an 18-year-old genius who could, you know, provide the next breakthrough in, in, in biology that allows us to treat all forms of cancer. So we're going to have some really interesting choices and it's kind of when do we hand over authority for those things to uh, the AI. In the accident example, I told you, we make those choices now, but we don't have any kind of value judgment. We just kind of go hit the car, hit that person. Um, and and we, we do it in a split second. Uh, so there's, there's going to be all sorts of areas where we're going to be challenged. The problem is that society's understanding of the technology is not that advanced generally, and we're not doing enough to raise people's understanding of what the technology is, how important it could be, and the ways in which it's already in our lives and the ways it's likely to come in. Uh, you're seeing a few countries do that, like Singapore has kind of education credits so that everyone can just go and learn anything. Uh, Finland has set up this um, online offering called the Elements of AI, and it's six modules that just teach you the basics of AI so you can have informed conversations rather than fact-free discussion uh, where you're just wasting time and air because no one actually knows what they're talking about, uh, um, believe me. Uh, I'd say those are the majority of conversations I have when I go into client organizations. Uh, and particularly if I'm asked them to talk about AI, I now kind of really encourage them to go and do those six things, those, those six modules first, give themselves permission to spend a bit of time. And then we just have a much more interesting conversation because I've moved them on. It'd be a little bit like going into a client, you know, talking to people who've never experienced the internet and then talking about what you could do. 
and and you know i was i had that again with clients 10 20 years ago who'd never used the internet and and kind of explaining them the power of what it could do and in one particular case they were an information provider and they just didn't get how the internet could uh, affect their business turned out that they were yellow pages um <laughs> I don't even know you remember the yellow pages. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was where you found the phone numbers and the people, right? Paper based. Um, how can we take some of the technologies you've mentioned today and, and other up and coming technology and use it to our advantage in terms of for the benefit of society and the planet? Now we're talking about climate change and being good citizens and being good travelers. And, and this is a dilemma for a lot of travelers now. Like, hey, okay, yeah, I want to take this trip. I, I see the value in travel uh, in terms of my life and, and and maybe even further down the comp, the impact of travel, at least for me, is definitely, I feel like if you want to travel and you are open to experiencing and learning from other cultures, a lot of that can translate later in life to maybe making an impact in other ways because you, you, you maybe have a broader world worldview or something like that, depending on you know who you are and what your motivations are. But I'm just wondering, there are a lot of issues right now, you know, over tourism, climate change, um, emissions, is the trip worth it? You know, should I be traveling a little bit of the traveler's guilt, right? Should I be getting on the, on the plane and having, uh, these emissions go into the atmosphere when I, I'm just going on a two week holiday to the beach or something, right? All of these moral and ethical dilemmas we can have as individuals. I'm just wondering, yeah, with with your broad view of where things may be going, how can we take some of this stuff and actually use it to make the world a better place? So there's a number of things there. One is uh, the, the aviation sector and the travel and tourism sector, I think have been unreasonably, well, They've had a disproportionate share of the, the attention focused on them. Yes, they are. They contribute to emissions. They contribute to waste. They contribute to loss of biodiversity. They're pushing all of the kind of planetary boundaries. They, they contribute to that. But they're nowhere near as damaging as shipping, as construction, as power generation, as heavy industries, uh, as domestic consumption you know there's a lot of things that contribute but that doesn't exonerate them but what it does mean is that we need to get smart here we need to start providing you the traveler with much better information so i've not yet seen any travel booking site and i must admit i haven't looked at any in the last year and a half but uh, i've not seen anyone show me alongside the prices what the co2 emissions will be for me of booking that flight with this airline versus that airline because we know which planes they use. And therefore, I kind of know. I remember there was a point where Finnair bought a whole bunch of new planes and they could demonstrate that flying from Europe to Asia, the carbon footprint for each flight was lower. And so the airlines have done a bit of that. But I think what would be fantastic now is if when you're doing the booking or doing the research, your AI basically provided you with all that information that said, okay, here's the carbon emissions and making that trip for not just the flight, but the travel to the airport, uh, travel at the other end, the hotel stays, the trips you're going to do. Here's the overall carbon footprint. But then here's the kind of estimated waste production you'll have. 
here's the estimated amount of water consumption. You know, here's all of the things that you're a part of your footprint. Do you still want to make that trip? And and here's what you would have to do to make up for it. And not just buying offsets, because offsets aren't really an answer. Offsets are where I basically pay for someone who emits less, op, uh, you know, emits less, say, okay, can I have some of the gap between what you theoretically are allowed to emit and what you are actually emitting and use that to offset the fact that I'm emitting more. So carbon offsets is one of the main pe- way people do it. You've got to get rid of that. We've got to get real behavior to drive it down. So to be shown, that, okay, here are your flights. Here's everything you're going to do. And in order to have this trip, to take the guilt away, here are 10 things you're going to have to do as lifestyle changes. Right. So you're going to have to give up your own car for the next five years. You're going to have to put a brick in a plastic bag inside your toilet so it uses less water when it flushes. Uh, you're going to have to switch the tap off when you're brushing your teeth until you need to wash your brush and then you turn it back on. You're going to have a regulator on your kettle so you don't put more water in than you need for one cup or two cups. You know, all these basic things that we could do now, but it's going to have to, you know, almost show us what we need to do to offset uh, what we're going to do so that we can we can be in balance or we can actually be in positive balance because we're doing more than, than we're, we're giving back more than we're taking. And I think that's something, you know, we could do that at the corporate level. We can start to give people calculators and we can start to give them really rich information and guidance about how to do things. The other thing we can do is beyond just the environmental stuff, if we take the UN's 17 sustainable development goals, we can start to think about well, which of those can we target? Where as an individual, as an organization, can I start to make a contribution? Uh, and what can I do to, to make that contribution, whether it's uh access to opportunity for women, whether it's education, whether it's climate change, whether it's life underwater, whatever it is, what can we do as individuals and organizations to address those things? But the technology becoming more and more smart, actually kind of showing us the sub goals that best fit with what we do and showing us the kind of actions we could take uh, because it's got such a big database of, of learning from others to know well, which seem to be the most effective actions that you could take as a household or as a business or whatever that would make a contribution here. And so I think the tech could really help us. The sort of tech for good notion could really help us advance on this kind of stuff. And um, uh, you're seeing companies, uh, I think it's uh, UiPath, the, the second fastest growing company in America. They do robotic process automation. We do some work with them. So uh, but they've brought out a paper recently called, uh, I think it's Automation for Good. And what they're showing is how automation can actually help advance a number of these sustainable development goals. So it's a very kind of interesting take on it and putting a different lens than, than people might have thought on how you can use automation to kind of enhance life on the planet rather than create challenges of just replacing people. Yeah, I love those ideas and that concept of being able to paint a picture of the practical steps you can take as an individual to say offset a flight or that's wonderful and encouraging. You know, a lot of the stuff we hear around AI and crypto and, you know, it's economic driven and um, it's just nice to have a little, (laughs) I guess, perspective on how this might actually improve things from a climate change perspective. Yeah, my guess is that almost no one 
knows the true ecological footprint of their weekly grocery shop. Yeah. Right, the food miles it's no. traveled, oh, yeah. where it was sourced so, from. You know, some people do. Some people put the effort into. I mean, I buy ca- avocados here in Norway. I shouldn't be able to get avocados here, right? Right. right. Uh, and uh, so, but if we could show people that information, and then nudge them towards the providers that have the lowest ecological footprint, and the most uh, sustainable, and the most ethically sourced, and whatever, you can suddenly start to to construct a much more uh, caring life, if you like, a much more considered life, a much more uh, responsible way of being without having to completely wander around in a kind of hemp shirt and, and walk everywhere you go. Right. We can start or spend to- five hours researching before you make a buying decision at the grocery store. <laughs> we, we can be encouraged into much more uh, sustainable behaviors um much more easily because we have to think about what's our legacy for the, ne- the generations to come uh and if we don't then we're, we're just storing up problems for them yeah um I have one last question for you how can the average person stay on top of trends like this is it resources uh you know you're in this every day i i, I think you the the trick is not to try and create create sort of a mountain for yourself that you can never scale uh, and just say you've got to stay on top of everything. I think the key is a kind of little and often a bit like exercise, just making sure that you're watching, you know, one or two videos a day, three, four, five minute videos from futurism, from interesting engineering, from Cheddar and all these places that show you, you know, new stuff, whether it's a kind of new water filtration technique that costs cents rather than dollars to be able to use in poor areas or like the next cool thing that ai can do it's a lot of that stuff out there and then finding you know having a look around finding the sites that do little daily newsletters or whatever that seem to provide the most fun and interesting information setting aside 20 minutes half an hour for some reading at the end of the week like it doesn't matter if you miss these developments during the course of the week they're, they're probably not going to change your life forever but setting aside half an hour to just do some reading, having conversations, I think is a really powerful thing. Get into conversations on Clubhouse, on social media, just getting where, where people are talking about stuff to understand it. And that's kind of how I've, uh, I built up my knowledge of crypto, actually, was just listening to podcasts, listening to the conversations between different podcasters who are kind of more experienced in the sector. You know, my, my knowledge of it grew very rapidly from hearing them talk writing down the terms they were mentioning that I didn't understand or pausing the podcast and going and learning the difference between proof of stake, proof of work, proof of authority, you know, all those things. Uh, what's the difference between a, um, a blockchain and a side chain and a parachain, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I would find five minutes of a video somewhere where someone explain it. I'm like, I've got that, you know, how does the liquidity pool work? Okay. I've got that. Um, and so my knowledge kind of accelerated at speed. Uh, the other thing is my 21-year-old son, uh, who like supercharges my knowledge because he, he he finds it before me most of the time and says, come down, let's do this. You know, have you tried this? Um, but it, it's that kind of stuff. It's just being willing to learn, going out there, exploring. The internet is such a rich resource now. There's so much free content. Uh, you would never have to pay for your education ever again if you didn't want to. And take courses from Harvard and places for free. You only pay for the certification. So there's there's no reason not to learn. 
and a part of the joy of this is rather than being giving out a list and you know i can share a list with you of, of starting points uh, i very happily kind of mail that to you to put you know on the podcast but um there's the big thing for me is the discovery of just putting in a google search term and seeing what happens when you go down the wormholes like put in the you know the future of whatever you know that and it doesn't mean you know why or wool <laughs> just see what comes up and see what people are saying or put in like fun terms like the human body 2050 and seeing what people are saying about what might enhance and augment humans over time how might the nature of being human change and it's those kind of things it's kind of rediscovering if you're not already you know enwrapped by the joy of learning it's rediscovering the joy of learning rediscovering uh the power of ideas developing a more flexible mindset around understanding what might be coming and that's one of the reasons why i i'm very loath to make predictions because then they narrow your mindset then it closes me off to ideas that might challenge my predictions uh well that's why uh we kind of like to explore possibilities uh, and when people say you know will crypto take over the global economy well, maybe you know here are some of the factors that are at play here so you know, you tell me what all you know how these factors might play out over the next twenty years. No one knows, but if you understand the basic factors, then you understand what causes the complexity, and you can understand how to read things better. You know, how to spot what's going on, which direction we're going in. Love it. Love the conversation. Thank you so much uh, for your time. I think we kept you a bit over, but uh, do you want to share with everybody where? wherever they can find you, where they want to learn more, the book, whatever you'd like here. Sure. So um, my email is rohit at fastfuture. Uh, so rohit at fastfuture.com. The website is fastfuture.com. Uh, if you go there, you'll find the new book, Aftershocks and Opportunities 2, Navigating the Next Horizon. And as Jason said, we've got uh, contributors from around the world. I think it's 22 countries uh, on – no, 16 countries, sorry, on five continents – uh, and fascinating explorations from the future of travel to uh, education, healthcare, wild ideas about could we use AI to mediate global conflict in the future. Just some really interesting you know, perspectives and conversations about the future. Uh, that's available from the website and the other books we've done. And then you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, we're at Twitter. And you can see some videos of me talking smack about all sorts of stuff uh, <laughs> when you get out there. Well, really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing all your knowledge with us today. And I'll leave all the links in the show notes per the usual. And have a wonderful rest of your day off. Hope this wasn't too much of a job for you early on here. <laughs> Actually, one other thought. We have got a newsletter. Um Okay. And the subscription to that, it's called Futurescapes. Uh, the subscription to that is normally $149, but we'll put a code up there so that your uh, the listeners to this podcast can uh, download it for a year, for, well, can access it for a year for free. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate that. And thank, thanks again for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. There you have it. My chat with Rohit, thank you to him for taking the time to come on the podcast and share with us his vision for the future of travel. And I feel so lucky to get to chat with somebody like Rohit who spends his days trying to forecast future trends 
fascinating. I, I just love that that's somebody's job, right? It's just another example of taking an interest or a passion or a hobby even and turning it into a career, which I know isn't for everybody, but certainly for me, I, I find that's very helpful to have things that you actually are excited about and care about greeting you each day when you wake up to do your work. And uh, Rohit just got me thinking about future trends and how important it is to stay on top of them. In fact, this is something I try to actively do in my own life. And maybe that's not everybody's interest, right? Where might the world be going? But if you have some inkling and you take a little bit of time to get informed, I find that not only can it prepare you for things that might be part of your everyday life in the future, you know, some things they they come and go, right? But other things, they stick around. And at first they seem like these fringe conversations and maybe this fringe community talking about something that, oh, well, that's not going to matter. I don't know anything about that. And that's just seems weird. And then all of a sudden it's mainstream or it's starting to creep in the mainstream. You see this with crypto. First, it seemed like this sort of fringe economy. Now you see articles about crypto all the time on major websites and and in news networks. And uh, it's become a realistic part of the future as opposed to just this sort of side thing. So is it better to just ignore that and assume that things are going to keep going as they have been? Or is it better to get a bit informed, maybe a bit prepared? Maybe it opens up new ideas for your business or for how you're going to incorporate or not incorporate that into your life. So there are all these questions that might come up, but those questions don't come up until you kind of know what's going on. And I started this podcast. I mean, podcasting is a good example in some ways. I was always attracted to audio, but when I started almost eight years ago, podcasting wasn't nearly as big as it is now. I didn't start it because I thought it was going to be a trend. I started it because I wanted to share stories that would help people travel the world. But I also understood that it was a really powerful way to reach a lot of people and to make an impact because I had a goal to help 1 million people to travel the world on their terms. And I knew that me writing blog articles or just talking to people in my local community about travel wasn't going to get me to a number that big. But looking at podcasting and how it seemed to be growing and how I was attracted to audio, it seemed to be a good match for my mission, for what I enjoyed, and for getting to have those conversations that I always love to have and and a great way to share them. So making sure that I understood what podcasting was and where it might be going and just getting my head around it was really helpful when I was taking those first steps and just not being afraid to listen to podcasts and to try it out. And I know that sounds funny right now, but back then there wasn't as much activity in the podcast world. So there are versions of podcasting or other things happening now that are going to become a part of our everyday personal lives or travel lives or whatever. And I just think it's, well, maybe it's also fun for me to try to stay on top of trends, see where things are going. But I think it can also be super helpful in in life. So those were just some thoughts coming out of this interview, why I thought it was important to have Rohit on and 
just stay on top of those future trends or at least kind of start paying attention to what some of those things might be. And he was uh, very kind to send an email afterwards with a bunch of helpful links, uh, things that were mentioned in the interview and some other super helpful resources. So I included all of those in the show notes to help you out, to help you stay on top of those future trends. Now, I'm going to leave you with a quote, actually a couple quotes, and we've talked a lot about the future, but it's also important to stay in the present, (laughs) right? So I wanted to share this American proverb. It goes, today is the first day of the rest of your life. And a classic from Alice Morse Earl, who said, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a gift That is why it is called the present. Enjoy the rest of your day, my friend. Thanks for spending time here with me today. Much love to you and yours. And I'll see you next time. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.